You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Well, good morning, everybody. It's so wonderful to get to see you all in our normal stomping grounds. Um, I'm David. If we haven't met, um, I'm usually back there. Um, it's been fun to kind of hang out with you guys in uh, the architecture building a couple times the last few uh, weeks, um, not only because it's just a fun building on its own, um, but when I worked as an instructor for the university, I actually taught in that building several times. Um, and so I was thankful to have my guitar with me, because otherwise I might have context switched and started just ranting about nostalgia um, to you all randomly. Um, but as it happens, even though we are in this room, um, I do not have my guitar, and I do have a doctoral dissertation to finish. So that's y'all's tough luck today. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so when we think about nostalgia, right, we, we, what do we usually think about, right? We're, we're looking back at something we, we remember from time gone past, right? It usually takes the form of a memory of some sort, and then um, an emotion that follows that. Right, that's, that's, that's the standard way we think about like, feeling nostalgic about something, right? And that's fine for if we're just reading BuzzFeed articles or whatever. But there's actually a lot more that goes into nostalgic senses and nostalgic feelings. Um, it's, it's, it's actually kind of cool because when we feel nostalgic about something, we are, we are making sense of our, our lives at three points in time at once. Like, it's like some time travel stuff. It's really great. So, like, we, we think about nostalgia as something that happens in the past, but it actually starts at a point in the present, right? So nostalgia starts with realizing that there's something lost or missing or not quite right about the, the life we are living in the moment, right? Our experience at this time, right? So you might be like, wow, I, I you know, I feel like I felt happier back when I was a child, or, like, I feel like I had more freedom in life before I had to take care of a family. Or, you know, I don't know. I feel like I just fought a lot of battles and then God instilled me as the king of Israel and, like, promised that he'd make a kingdom out of my line. You know, relatable stuff. <laughs> Comes forward, right? And so when we realize this discrepancy, our first instinct is to look back, right? It's to look back and try to find a reference point in our lives where that discrepancy wasn't there. Right? Oh, where there, there were these cool toys that let me live out my wish fulfillment. Um, and yeah, I had that happiness. I had that freedom. You know, I was just fighting battles without the kingly responsibilities, what have you. Um, so that's the point at which we look back. But we don't just look back, right? So Fred Davis discusses a phenomenon called interpretive nostalgia, where after we've looked back, we've, we've discovered that reference point. Um, we've done some thinking about it. We do some reflecting on it. At that point after that, we look forward. Because once we've repaired this, discrep <laughs> once we've repaired this discrepancy in our lives, we look forward and, I, and we say, should I have been nostalgic about that? Um, sometimes we answer, no, maybe not, right? Like, the nostalgia about this um, led to some dangerous things in life, and so we should make a different choice moving forward. Um, and sometimes our nostalgic says, heck yeah, things were awesome. Let's do more of that. If anyone's seen Pacific Rim, um, just watch the first one. It, it's, it's Masterpiece Cinema. That's my obligatory movie reference for the week. 
right? But we are trapped when, it, when as soon as we realize that discrepancy in our lives, we are eventually trapped into this process, this cycle that forces us to make a decision about what, what we're going to do about it, right? We've heard that language, you know? Nostalgia asks us the same question that the Kairos moments in our huddles are asking, right? We have this discrepancy. What is this nostalgic thinking? What is this, what is this desire to reconcile the discrepancy telling us? And what are we going to do about it? Last week, Nick brought us into a mini-series on the Messianic Psalms um, and, and led us through this notion that these psalms are written in a time of craziness, right? Craziness um, for David um, back, in, back in the kingdom of Israel, but they also speak to our craziness today, right? The cultural craziness, um, the, the interpersonal craziness in our lives. We are, we are caught in this, the political craziness, we're caught in this endless cycle, this, this endless discrepancy where we're sensing that something's not right. And just as our nostalgic instincts cause us to do this about our culture, our history, um, our relationship with, with the signs and symbols around us, David in Psalm 110 directs us to look forward towards the coming reign of Jesus. That's how he dealt with his crazy. That's how he calls us to deal with our crazy. Right, looking forward, noticing the discrepancy, and acting on that instinct to look forward to something namely the saving work of Christ. That's what we're doing throughout this entire season of Lent. And the Psalms are, um, Psalms are difficult to, to cover with any sort of empirical rigidness, right? Because we talked about, in many sense, we can read them through the same philosophical lens as we read any other form of scripture. Um, but the, the problem with that is, like, they're poetry, right? They're literature. There's, there's metaphor, there's imagery, um, there's a lot of abstract ideas where you ask what it means, and the answer might be yes. I mean, there are certainly things that it doesn't mean, right? But we can't look at any one of these verses and just say, yeah, there's a clear follow-through on that. But it's that ambiguity that actually helps us understand how we look forward to Jesus Christ and our craziness. And we'll, we will unpack that as we unpack the passage a little bit more today. Um, each of these verses you could write its own sermon on, and I was telling the team earlier today, like the first draft of the sermon was like 55 minutes because you could get into every single one of these verses. I'm not going that long, don't worry. Um, <laughs> but what's going to happen is before we spend a little bit of time unpacking um, the psalm today, we're just going to read it together, reflect on it, um, use it as a form of worship to our Lord, um, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll get started, all right? So let's read through Psalm 110 together. It's just going to be on the next few slides going through. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for this chance to dive into your word. Thank you that um, the words and, and the, the, the thoughts and, and the spirit-led insights of your servant David um, can guide us even today to a better understanding of you and to a more 
holistic pursuit of you, Lord. Um, be with us as we dive into these words. Um, may we use them to worship. May we use them to, um, to be guided by, um, and may we use them to look to you this morning. And if anything I say um, detracts us from those purposes, uh, may be struck from the memory speaker of this room. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So I mentioned that the Psalms... They're works of literature, right? So if you've taken any English class, you go through any sort of literary analysis framework, you talk about three things. You talk about your context, sort of what's going on around the piece of literature. You talk about your text, what is literally being described by the words in the literature. You talk about your subtext, right? What's under the surface? What, what are these metaphors and images and more abstract, um, less literal parts of the, of, of the piece of literature getting at? Right, and Psalm 110 invites us to take a look at all three of these things, and as we, get, as we delve deeper into it, as we get less literal um, in how we look at the psalm, we come to a greater understanding of what exactly David is calling us to. Um, because as is the case with a lot of wisdom literature, um, and even a lot of pedagogical literature in the Bible, right, depending on what your relationship already is with the kingdom of God, you're going to have different inputs to it. All right, so let's discuss some context a little bit. Psalm 110 is the third in a trinity, of a, a trilogy of, of Davidic psalms that are sort of located about, like, two-thirds of the way through the Psalter, right? And they're just randomly there in the midst of a bunch of psalms that were written as God's people were taken out of exile, right, as they were recovering from being spread, from being taken over, spread out over the Middle East, um, and processing what that means for their identity as people of God, right? And so we have Psalm 110, but we also have Psalm 108 and 109 coming before it, right? So 108 was positioned as, as written about roughly the same time as 110, um, but the long and short story of that is the first half of it is a lament, right? It, it is lament about um, David's enemies, the, milit the, the militaristic losses they are suffering, but it but it ends off with a message of hope. Right, David is forced to reckon with the fact that even though um, he doesn't presently see the circumstances changing, he knows that God has, has promised victory over his enemies um, and, that he will and that it is through their, God's power um, that they will be delivered from the enemies at the end. It's followed by Psalm 109, which is written... Um, at least scholars think, quite a bit before 108 and 110. And 109 is dreadful. Um, it's what we call an imprecatory psalm. Um, and it's David basically just cursing out his enemies. So David is not in a positive place right now. Um, he's not gone through the arc of, of holding on to the promise of God. Um, but what he does know is that God has the power to put the, his enemies to shame, and he, he implores God to do that. And then we have Psalm, 10, Psalm 110, which is, which is thoroughly a declaration um, of God's victory over his enemies. The lament is gone. Um, David has, has come through the ark, and he is now fully on the side of God will destroy his enemies um, in the day he comes to power. And so when we view these, these psalms as sort of, um, with David being in the same mind space, right? Um, he's in a place of desperation. 
He's in a place of seeing regular loss, regular despair for God's people, the people of Israel, but nevertheless holding on to a promise from God. Right, that God will deliver them from their enemies in the short term. And at this point, um, David has received a promise from the Lord. Right, Nathan, um, the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, one day there will be a king who not only never loses, but he will reign on the throne forever. And David, that king, will come from your line. So David's trying to reconcile these circumstances he's going through, the plight of the people of Israel with this promise that somewhere in his line will be the king that, 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 ha- that gains the eternal victory and reigns forever. Um, and Psalm 110 makes explicit reference to this king. Right? If we look through the verses, the imagery tells us that this is a king being discussed. Right? Um, we're tempted, to get, we're tempted to get sort of lost in the weeds when we read, the, the Lord says to my Lord. Um, in the time, that might have been confusing for people, but they would have understood that the capital Lord um, signifies Yahweh, right? A, a euphemistic reference to the God of the Bible, Jehovah, right? And the other Lord referred to Adonai, the more, gen, the more generic, for lack of a better word, term for Lord, right? And it would have been tempted, tempting at least for David's audience to get wrapped up in who is who, but this, image, this imagery suggests that we are, we are looking at a king here. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And then we have an image in verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So, like... Anyone get mixed up by this one in, in their small groups? They were, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like there were a ton of questions. And uh, you'll be happy to know that you are in good company. Um, the, the professional scholarship on Psalm 110 considers this verse right here like one of the most opaque Hebrew phrases in all of Scripture. Um, so there, there's, other than like an attempt by Charles Spurgeon like some 100 years ago or so, who like that's sort of the take, but... There's been a lot of criticisms on that. The point being, right, pretty much everyone can agree that these Hebrew words translate to these English words, and there's little concern there. But when you put the English words together, there is still to this day not a complete consensus um, on what the heck is going on in this verse, right? And to me, that's one of the, like, awesome parts of Psalms, right? You cannot stem lord your way through the Psalms, right? There's going to be parts of the Psalms you encounter, um, you just have to let them wash over you rather than understand them in their entirety. But there are some images I think we can pull onto, right? The most powerful one being the dew of your youth will be yours. And your people will offer themselves freely. So for one thing, we've got this image of a king where people are freely lining up to serve the king. So this was, that was not an understood thing. The dynamic of the time would have been, um, king comes through, he orders you to serve him, and that was what you go and do. But you've got people offering themselves freely. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Who's been out in the sunrise and like felt dew on the ground? Do any physics people know how that works? Most people don't. I don't think. Like, there is a process, right? Some capillary action or, so, or some other process um, that was probably in high school earth science, but I've forgotten about it. But, like, if we look at the broad human experience, right, we see dew on the ground, 
It's just there. It appears. It's inevitable. We don't know when it's going to show up necessarily. There are weather conditions that maybe suggest that. But from the start of the day, when we walk out of our houses, we see it there greeting us on the ground, signaling that the new adventure is here, the, the next morning is to come. And there's a lot of scholarship that suggests that the, the troops that will fight the battle for the Lord, the people who will stand on the side of the Lord, on the side of this king, will appear with just as much suddenness, will appear, appear with just as much readiness. And they may not even know why they're there, which I think is really cool. The dew of your youth will be yours. So your youth is not the king's youth. It's like the literal youth of the kingdom. It's the children. Before you even know what you're doing, before, they even know, before these children even know what they're doing, they will be lined up ready to serve the Lord. We can see that there's something more powerful happening here. And there's more imagery that makes sense, um, that, that sounds realistic for both a king and a military leader. Right? He will execute judgment among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs. Picks up the same image from Psalm 2. And then we have another weird image here. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So, again, you could give an entire sermon on just that verse itself, but drinking by the brook, you're going to be refreshed. This king is refreshing himself after battle, and then he's lifting up his head. Lifting up his head towards the Lord. But there's another commentator that has um, kind of a, a just as likely interpretation of this passage that I think is kind of funny. So drinking from the brook, it, it is implied that this brook would be in foreign territory, like where you just killed a bunch of people. Um, so it's a little bit of a flex, right? I'm going to kill all your people, and then I'm going to drink all your water. I'm going to take this natural resource from you um, just to make this victory more comprehensive. And therefore, he will lift up his head. I'm going to look at you with confidence. I'm going to make sure you know you are beaten. Right, and so when we unpack this imagery, we can see that, like, we can see that this is, this, this is a powerful and sometimes maybe difficult to stomach image of what God's, image, what God's victory over his enemies will look like, right? Number one, it's going to be inevitable. It will come when we, like, when we least expect it. We won't understand it. It will be destructive. People will die. Kingdoms will fall. Power dynamics will be disrupted. And God's victory will be humiliating and all-consuming for the people who stand against him. That's our text, right? That's, that's, that's at least, if, if you walk out right now because you've got to go study or something, and you walk out with that, you will have at least unpacked it enough, right? But something's different about this king. This isn't the kind of king where you, like, this isn't the king in the, in the sense we'd understand it. It's not, a, it's not an earthly king. And David makes that clear by pointing out a few things. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. First of all, that, that a king would be anything forever is kind of like an odd concept for people. Um, like that's what kings do, right? They 
get too big for their britches, they get destroyed, um, they get replaced with a new king, sing, see the book of Judges or pretty much any other book in the Old Testament for more details on that. But this idea of being a priest forever, after you have the order of Melchizedek, right? So in David's time, right, it, it was standard for kings in Israel to be completely distinct from the priests, right? We see as we go through the first five books of the Bible that God assigned um, the Levites, the sons of Aaron, to carry out priestly duties um, in the house of the Lord, right? Burning incense, making atonement for sins um, on behalf of God's people. That was set apart for a very specific group of people to do. Um, and it was, it was ordained as, as an infrastructure for having a king came into place that they would not, never the twain shall meet, right? The kingly office and the priestly office would be separate. Um, in fact, after David's time, there would be a king of Israel um, who would attempt to combine the two, right? Who would attempt to take on the office of priest. Um, and he was severely punished for that. He became a leper for the rest of his life went into the house of God with a burning censer attempting to burn an offering to the Lord. Why? Because he wanted the priestly power too. He wanted the office. But he wasn't worthy of it. It wasn't his to take. And by the way, I don't think that's like a terribly unrelatable thing. Confession time. So in high school, who like sought out an executive office in some student organization just because it looks good on a resume? Yeah, okay. As some people are coming clean. I have a hard time believing, but yeah, like, German club co-president isn't a thing as it happens, but <laughs> it was good enough. But before the order of the Levites, before the sons of Aaron were given this job, and this is David in our nostalgic instinct, he's looking back now. He's realizing the distinction and realizing, okay, What's something we know about, right? As God's preventing us this solution, what's, what's a time where we didn't feel this discrepancy as much? He's going all the way back to Genesis, right? Melchizedek, he gets like two lines in the book of Genesis, but the two things we know is that he was considered God's king, and he was a priest. He was a person who held the kingly duties and the priestly duties in one. Um, and fully like three chapters of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament um, basically serves as a commentary for that comparison. Um, and if we ever do a series through the book of Hebrews, I'm sure that that comparison will be made more clear. So after hundreds of years now of the kingly office and the priestly office being separated, now we have a king who's worthy of both. In fact, he's worthy of power in ways no one and no thing else that we know is. And the other thing is, he's going to be in power forever. He will not be deposed. He will not be defeated. He will not be taken down by his own sinful ways and grabs for power, just like every king in human history, or at least this part of human history, would go on to be. So we know it's something different there. So I'm hoping that, especially if you talk this over in your small group, um, that who David is referring to, or at least like projecting forward to, isn't terribly hidden, right? 
Someone want to give the Sunday school answer for me? Yay, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, that never gets old. <laughs> yeah, and Jesus tells us as much himself, right? In, th- in three different Gospels, I was going through the, um, the book, the, the example of this in the book of Luke literally just last week as part of our huddle. Um, Jesus, pretty much out of nowhere, too, right? I mean, the, the Pharisees are, or the Sadducees are questioning Jesus' authority, and he all of a sudden turns to this exact psalm. He says, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Now, he hasn't revealed himself as the Messiah yet, but he's planted the seed to know that Hey, guys, this is coming. He's revealed himself to the people around him, right? But this provides a problem, right? So we know that David was aware that someone in his line would be a forever king that would have all this power and rule forever. And Jesus doesn't deny that he is that king. He doesn't deny his lineage um, with David. But how then... Could David have written a psalm that makes this truth so powerful, that that makes this truth so clear, that looks forward to a king that, as far as he knows, doesn't exist yet? Well, there are three justifications that he has for writing this psalm in his day. And there are three comparable justifications for it being relevant to us as we understand what it means for Jesus to be a forever king to be a king that destroys his enemies so comprehensively and so permanently that we cannot help but look to him. So if Jesus is king and David didn't know that it would specifically be Jesus from his own knowledge, he didn't have firsthand empirical knowledge of his Lord yet, what he did have, remember from those other psalms, was the promises of God. From the prophet Nathan, from, from his experiences on the battlefield, he had the promises of God, and he had instances he could point to of God's faithfulness, and that God would fulfill his promises. And so today we need to acknowledge that the promises of God are all that we have too. Right. Funnily enough, we also don't have first-hand knowledge of Jesus. We've never met him in person. Like we have encountered him in our hearts. Those of us who call him Savior have been in, are, are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and so we know him on that level. But until he comes again, we've never seen him face to face. So what do we do with that? Right. We acknowledge that the promises of God and His faithfulness to fulfill them are all we have. And so we're, if we're sitting on Earthly examples, it's like what Nick talked about last week, if we're sitting on politicians, if we're sitting on leaders, if we're sitting on scientific knowledge, all of those things are great. All of those things help us make sense of the crazy world we live in, but they're not the answer to our destruction, and they never will be. So if we didn't have firsthand of Jesus yet, David needed the power of the Spirit to speak this word. Right, we can acknowledge, and this may have been discussed in your small group, the degree to which God empowered David through his spirit to give this word. To speak of events he had not seen, but that would one day come to pass.
And if David had to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and not his own ability to give this word, then he had the boldness, he had the justification to hold on to this truth without, without having seen it in his lifetime. And we on the same measure can rest in the sovereignty of God and his victory over death with that boldness too. I were told as much so many times in scripture, right? Through a bunch of different ways. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In Philippians, right? What does that mean? We can pray as if we've already see, received what we're asking for. Hebrews 4, 6, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Right, because of, the, because of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we can approach God without having to be fearful of that. This is the one I have a problem with. Not a problem with, but like I've struggled with it over the course of being a believer. But the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness, and therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest in me. Like, y'all, I'm a recovering perfectionist. Like, I had a hard time believing that anything was made stronger in my weakness. And I'm talking to a room full of engineers, so I'm sure that's, you know. <laughs> so, like, someone give me an amen right now. But we have to hold on to this boldness to rest in Jesus' victory, even though we, we honestly, like, we, we've never seen him. We, we have no knowledge of it. And most importantly, like, our circumstances haven't changed yet. And finally, David knew that God's victory shows that God is powerful yesterday, today, and forever. What we miss in the psalm is that God's power is not tied to this little slice of time or this little slice of circumstances that we're stuck in today. God's ultimate victory over death means yesterday he was king, today he was king, tomorrow he's going to be king. Decades from now, his victory will still be valid. And as we've seen, no other king, no other power, no other ruling force can say the same thing. And so David chooses to side with God. David chooses to put his trust in the Lord in his own season of crazy, in his own season of knowing nothing. And therefore, we not only can, but we have to recognize that the answer to our crazy, the answer to our Relational issues, the answer to our political economic strife, the answer to not knowing how things are going to work out, is choosing Jesus. So as we wrap up today from, from looking at this passage, I want to ask, what are some things you're looking forward to? That's a real question, actually. Shut him out. Spring break. A baby. A wedding. Summer. Summer. Nick being able to run outside. Mm -hmm. I will tell you one thing that I looked forward to as a child um, was getting a dog. I love dogs. Um, 
And I was just convinced when I was around five or six years old that my family would be getting a dog. Um, it was just something I, I assumed as a matter of course. And so whenever we'd walk past, like, or whenever we'd drive past like a pet store or an animal shelter, I'd be like, Mom, Dad, is that where we're getting our dog? <laughs> Never even occurred to me that, you know, the possibility might exist that my parents don't like dogs very much at the time. Um, and so getting a dog was not in the immediate future. But, man, I, ha I had hope. I, I had rested on the side that getting the dog was going to be the best course of action for me. Um, and so that was just going to happen, right? Do we choose God with that same relentlessness, right? Do we look at circumstances that say there's no way God can be here and choose to stand on the side that he is here and he is moving and he is working? Because God calls us to do that in this psalm and throughout all of his scripture. And he does that for two reasons, right? Number one, he wants to be in a relationship with us. He loves us. He wants to know and be known by every single person in this room. And I think this psalm gets at a powerful piece of the gospel, right? God being, Jesus being the forever king means he's not a get-out-of-hell free card that we cash in when we die. Jesus is not just assurance that we are free from an eternity of separation from God. He is those things, right? And that's important, right? It is, it is important to know that we get to stand at the presence of God because of Jesus' work. But here, now, he loves us. And he wants to come with us into the crazy. But the second reason is is that he invites us into a relationship with him um, isn't just because he wants to save us and love us, but because he demands it of us. He needs us to understand that if we do not choose to follow him, if we do not choose to look at the holy work, of, to, to look at the work of Christ and know that he is the forever king and that he is the only one worthy of power, worthy of worship, that there is no hope, there is nothing but destruction and humiliation in store for those who stand apart from him. Um, and those who stand apart from him will be revealed for the, for the powerless people that each and every one of us is without Jesus. No matter how much you know, no matter how much power you think you have. Without getting in too much of a tangent like, does life, does life feel kind of hopeless sometimes? Like, that's on purpose. Like, depression is real, but so is pride. So we close today with the question, where are you looking? You've recognized the discrepancy. God has given us his word for us to look back on, to find the reference points as to where this discrepancy and how this discrepancy has gotten revealed. So are you looking forward? Are you making the choice to follow that spiritual nostalgic impact and make the decision to say, I'm going to move towards Jesus because the craziness isn't going to get solved by anything in this world? Let's pray and ask God to help us look that way today.